Hey, Peculiar Stories fans, this is Kim Yellen, and I'm with Anna Howington, and we really quickly at the very beginning of this podcast just wanted to take a second to talk to you about the current pandemic and the situation that's been going on. My sister is a nurse, and so she's on the front lines, and Anna is in a very hard-hit area. Yeah, big thank you to every healthcare worker that's out there mm-hmm. on the front lines of this pandemic. And not just the healthcare workers, but also the people working in grocery stores, the people delivering supplies and food to the American public. We just want to say a heartfelt thank you and that we hope that you guys know how much we appreciate the work that you're doing. We hope that you stay safe and mm-hmm. that you get the supplies that you need to keep yourself safe. We hope that this this is a bit of a release for everybody and we hope that you can kind of yeah. take a step away from from all the things that are happening and all the the trials that we're going through and just have some fun with us for a little bit. Stay healthy, stay inside. All right, so with that, I guess we'll feed into the show. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Peculiar Stories and Far Out Tales. I'm Anna Howington. And I'm Kim Yellen, and I'm just going to jump right in. I want you to remember way back when to last time I was in New York. Okay. And we were stumbling through Central Park, and we started out at the library, and we were trying to get to the Met. And then I said, oh, we should go see this thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it's a dog. Yes, yes. So this is the story of Balto, which is the dog in Central Park. And the 1925 antitoxin run to Nome, Alaska. Yay! Um, it starts out in Nome, Alaska, um, which is a, a pretty small town in um, northern Alaska. It was a gold rush town when it first started. But by 1925, the population had dwindled to um, about 1,500 people. Um, a third of those were Alaska natives. And then the rest were of European settler descent. Um, during the winter, it got really cut off from everything. Um, It has a port, but the water would all freeze. Um, You couldn't reach it by plane because of the wind. So it was pretty isolated during a good chunk of the year, actually. Okay. Um, So during the winter of 1925, a small girl was brought to the town doctor uh, showing signs of a sore throat and tonsillitis, and the doctor just sent her home And then three days later, she died. And then two more children were brought to the doctor with the same thing. And that was when the doctor had big fears that this was the beginning stages of diphtheria. One of the nicknames for it is leather throat. They also call it the choking disease. Oh, It's an inflammation of the tissue in your throat. So your throat swells and you essentially choke to death. Oh, my God. That's awful. Yeah, really, really bad. And it's very, very, very contagious. Hmm to be in this really tight-knit, small community and then have this really contagious disease starting was a really, really big deal. So uh, I have a question. Is that one of the things that we get vaccinated for? Yes. Okay. One of the things I was reading about, it said that now in in the first world anyway, it's pretty much eliminated. For now. (laughs) Right, yeah, for now, because we get vaccines for it. It's in, I think it's in, I should have asked my sister, it's in one of the, like, you know, ones that's, like, all the initials, like, TDAP or whatever, I think. I'm not quite sure. I think it's one of those. But, yeah, we get, we're supposed to get 
everyone should get vaccines for it. Vaccinate your children. Please Please vaccinate your children. Dear God. (laughs) Yes. So or else this happens. Like this is the result of it, right? (laughs) Yeah. So um, diphtheria started to run really rampant through this town and there started to be more and more children coming in. Um, And there wasn't really much that they could do in the winter supply. I guess they kind of just get one big supply that's supposed to last them all winter. The antitoxin was not part of that supply. So the doctor in the town, Dr. Welch, was really worried about this and really concerned. So he sent a telegram down to the public health service. um, And it says, uh, an epidemic of diphtheria is almost inevitable here. Stop. I'm in urgent need of 1 million units of diphtheria antitoxin. Stop. So he was really worried about this. He kind of reached out to everybody he could. And the closest antitoxin was in Anchorage, hmm. which was really far away down the coast. So after a lot of discussion, they decided that the only way to do it was with sled dogs. Okay. And so they started to reach out to a bunch of different sled dog people. And the, the one, um, they called him the King of Alaska, oh. um, was this guy named uh, Leonard Seppala. He was a breeder of the Siberian Husky, he was one of the first ones, or the first one, depending on who you ask, hmm. uh, to bring over Siberian Huskies. He was the big guy in sled dog. I see. So originally, they were talking to him about just taking it the whole way. Okay. But then they figured out, like, it was like 600 miles. Oh, my gosh. Also, this big storm was coming in. And so they figured that the best way would be this kind of relay. Okay. So they put together this relay of 20 men and 150 dogs. Oh, my gosh. So um, it started on January 27th with this guy named Wild Bill Shannon. Wow, what yeah. a name. <laughs> and he supposedly mushed for 24 hours straight trying to get to his checkpoint. And then there were kind of these checkpoints set up all along the way. Were there little communities along the way? Yeah. This trail is called the Iditarod Trail. Oh. It was kind of a common a trail that they'd been using for decades. Don't they do a race there every year? Yeah. We'll talk about the race at the end. The race wasn't started until much later. Okay. So they started out, they pointed out that one of the mushers had little shoes that they put on their dogs because it was really, really, really cold conditions. I was reading like negative 40 Fahrenheit and winds of 80 miles an hour was was really (laughs) common. Right. Very cold. Wow. Dogs were dying. There were like 10 dogs they said died. So it was was really, really, really harsh conditions. So one of the very last legs, so the third to last leg was when uh, Leonard Seppala took over and his lead dog was named Togo. So he got the most dangerous part of the whole trek over these mountains and through these really flat open areas, which you wouldn't think would be dangerous, but they were saying that was really dangerous because the wind would just whip through. He was dealing with total darkness, all these blackouts. Um, And he really, really, really trusted his dog, Togo. So Togo was his prized dog. He loved this dog. And while he was on the track, The doctor back in Nome was kind of hearing all these reports about the storms that were coming through and -hmm. just decided that the best thing to do was to put the relay on hold for a little bit. You know, it's it's one thing to try to get the serum as quickly as you can, but at the same time, if you're... Putting other lives at risk. Right, putting your lives at risk and then putting the antitoxin at risk. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like if something happens to that, then nobody gets it. Yeah. So while he was on this track, he was dealing with all of these blizzards. Um, It says it was negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit. He was dealing with deadly winds and the storm was not letting up. It should be noted too that the total distance that he traveled was 91 miles, which is 
way more than anybody else even hmm. got close to. So wow. like how long did it take him to travel that long? Him personally? The whole relay. The whole relay it started on January 27th and then it ended up in Nome on February 1st. Oh wow. So that was one of the things too is that like that's unheard of. Like that's so fast compared to even what they do now. Wow. So uh Leonard Seppala passed off his supply and then the next guy took it over and then after him was was what was supposed to be the second to last person and his name is Gunnar Carlson and Gunnar Carlson was another uh musher but not as famous at all. He kind of was just a supply runner guy. Okay. And his dog was owned by Leonard Seppala, but he rented him out, and his name was Balto. Okay. Balto was not a big, strong dog like Togo was. They called him a scrub dog, and he was neutered right away because they didn't want to, like, pass on these traits. Oh. Balto was was not really considered the, like, primed dog. He was the underdog. He was the underdog, yeah. So Balto and Gunnar Carlson took over. And so they dealt with a lot of the same things that everybody had kind of been dealing with along the way. He was going across frozen lakes and rivers. And I guess that there's this thing called overwash, which is when water is going over the ice. (gasps) Um, They were dealing with all of these winds. And right before he got to what was supposed to be his checkpoint, um, they went through a flat area and a huge gust of wind came and blew over his sled and knocked the antitoxin into a snowbank. Oh, and wow. so Gunnar Carlson was digging through it without his mittens to like try to find um, this antitoxin. He was looking for a long time, but eventually he did find the antitoxin. Oh, thank God. So then he put everything back on and then he was dealing with pretty much whiteout conditions. Um, and he was totally trusting his dog. Like, he couldn't see any dangers. He couldn't see past the first set of dogs. Oh, wow. He was totally trusting his dog and totally turned it over to Balto to lead the way. Um, because of the storm, they had kind of tried to go around a snowbank. And that made them to miss, not not the checkpoint that he was supposed to pass off stuff, but just kind of a stopping point. Mm-hmm. And because they missed that, they weren't told that the relay had been suspended. Oh, I see. He just kept going. He kind of bypassed it. And he got to this town called Safety, which was supposed to be the point when he passed off the antitoxin to the last runner. But that runner had gotten word that the race was suspended. And so it was three in the morning and he was just asleep. Him and all of his dogs were asleep. And so Gunnar Carlson decided to just finish up himself. (laughs) He didn't think about just like knocking on someone's door? Well, even if you do that, though, like the time it takes to like set up and get all the dogs all rigged and get everything ready, it would just take too long. Whereas he could kind Uh, of finish up the last bit by himself. Okay. And so, and he had gone through this really hard time and the last 21 miles were supposed to be pretty smooth sailing. Okay. So it turned out that they were. The blizzard had... Um, dissipated. Dissipated, yeah. Had kind of faded out. Um, and so the last 21 miles were were pretty easy. Um, and he made it into Nome. None of the vials of antitoxin had been broken. He had the full supply. He drove right to the doctor's office. And one of the things I was listening to said that he, um, you know, that all the townspeople were really excited or whatever, and that he was really tired and he went up to Balto and he supposedly said, that's a damn good dog and then collapsed. I'm like crying right now. (laughs) I love that so much. (laughs) I know. It just seems very like dramatic. 
Um, all the children that got the antitoxin made a full recovery. Mm. The only reported deaths from the outbreak um, were five children. However, that is only the white children. Oh. Because I guess that with the Native Alaskans at the time, I don't, I don't know if it's true now, it's against their culture to have kind of post-mortem examinations. Oh. And so they couldn't really tell if it was because of diphtheria or, or what was. Oh, so. Okay. And so it was five children were reported to have died from this, mm -hmm. um, but it could have been much higher. But it could have been, I mean, if they didn't get the serum, it could have been way, way, way worse. Yeah. There was a quarantine of Nome that was lifted. Everyone was really excited. Then we get to the aftermath. So during the run, these reports had all been sent down to the continental United States and everybody was so into this. Like they were so into the story. They were following it at every chance they get. It was published in a whole bunch of newspapers. And so Balto and Gunnar Carlson kind of became heroes. They became the face of this. And so they started a tour of the United States. Aww. So yeah, so they started out in L.A., and Balto was given the bones of the city. Um, and there was a, an interview, quote, an interview with Balto. And they were like, so, Balto, what do you think of L.A.? And Balto was like, well, I like Alaska better. It was really funny that they were, like, making him say these things, saying that Balto said these things. Aww. So they went on this whole media blitz tour. They were stopping at vaudeville theaters, which <laughs> I always think of vaudeville as, like, trashy but I guess at one point it was just kind of variety shows like I guess maybe I just don't know what vaudeville means I thought it meant not good no I think no they were just traveling shows they would go around to different communities I mean they didn't have HBO so right <laughs> yeah um they were on tour for a total of a year and a half oh wow and then when they eventually made it to New York there was a statue in Central Park that was commissioned for them yay yeah. And then a hundred years later, Anna and Kim went to go see it. <laughs> and it was great. Did we get a picture of both of us there? We definitely got one of you. Yeah. I, uh, was I even in it? I just know that like 20 years ago, my family went to New York City and it was right when the movie came out. There was an animated movie about Balto. Oh, th that's right. Yeah. Yeah. With Kevin Bacon voicing Balto. Oh, wow. <laughs> which actually, in the documentaries I was watching, they kept talking about how wildly inaccurate that <laughs> animated movie was. They were very upset. Yeah. But um, I think that movie had just come out. And so my youngest sister really wanted to see the statue of Balto. And then my dad took a picture of me and my sisters with it. And then we got the pictures developed and he had cut off Balto's head. <laughs> so when we went to it, I was like, I just need to make sure I get Balto's head in the picture. Yeah. And we did. We got it. We did. Yes. We got that shot. Yep. So Balto and Carlson were both at the unveiling of this statue. Aww. A placard on the front of it says, dedicated to the indomitable indomitable spirit of the sled dogs that relayed antitoxins 600 miles over rough ice across treacherous waters through Arctic blizzards to relief of stricken gnome in the winter of 1925. And then it says endurance, fidelity, intelligence. So it was really supposed to be dedicated to all the sled dogs. Uh -huh. But Balto was the star. Yeah. And this was kind of the final straw for Sepala. So Seppala was kind of annoyed that Balto was the face of this act because he really felt like his dog Togo, who he loved, 
was the dog that went through the hardest part, the most dangerous part. He felt mm-hmm. like Togo was a better representation of this breed that he had really started. Mm-hmm. Um, there were also some accusations that Carlson was trying to like take the spotlight that he had purposefully bypassed the last stop. Hmm. And so this statue was the last straw. Seppala was the owner of this dog. And so he decided that he was just going to sell this dog. He didn't want it to ever come back to Alaska. And Carlson, although he had gone on this big media blitz, he was really of meager means. He didn't he didn't have the money to buy Balto. So Balto ended up getting sold off to this man named Sam Houston in L.A. Sam Houston owned it's called a dime museum. And so Balto went back to L.A. and it's really sad. He was like chained. He and the six dogs that were still around um, were like chained to a wall. (gasps) Kind of a freak show. Like that was kind of. Oh, no. um, How they made it seem. And so they were underfed. They didn't know how to deal with these dogs. It was in the heat of L.A. and they're huskies. That's so awful. Aren't people just so shitty compared to dogs? Yes. He was like living his calling in Alaska. Right. Right, yeah. And just because somebody got jealous and then somebody else wanted to make a buck, mm-hmm. that's so sad. Yes, oh. it super is that. Like, I feel like it's like he got jealous and he wanted to, like, stick it to this guy. Ugh. I don't know, like, take it out on the guy. Like, yeah. Why do you have to, like, bring the dog into this? Or you know what? How about you just be an adult and fucking let it go? Right, right. They were. I was wondering, too, like, why couldn't all the dogs or all the people go on this? Well, maybe it was expensive. And also, like, who right. really cares? Like, if, if what which dog is out there? Like, you're, right. you're getting the story out there. You saved the children. Like, more people know about these sledding dogs. Right. It's just, uh, that's awful. Yeah. Super, super sad. Aww. Poor Balto. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, it gets better. Yes. Please. Oh, yeah. thank God. <laughs> so Balto and, and the other dogs were living in these really terrible conditions. Um, it said they were there for about a year, which is super sad. So then um, this man named George Kimball was visiting L.A. It says that he was a former prize fighter turned businessman from Cleveland. And he was shocked to discover the conditions of these dogs. Like he kind of randomly walked into this dye museum. I don't know if you're in L.A. and you don't have anything to do for a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, So he went into this dye museum and he was just so saddened by how these dogs were kept. It says they were underweight. They had mange. And so he went back to Cleveland and started this campaign to save Balto, essentially. So they ended up raising what would today be $28,000 and bought Balto. They bought Balto and the six remaining dogs. And they took them to Cleveland and to um, what was called at the time the Brookside Zoo. But now it's it's just the Cleveland Municipal Zoo. And they lived the rest of their lives in the zoo, like in this big open pen where they could run around. And they were really well cared for. And all the, they were the favorite exhibit, which see, like, it seems kind of funny to see dogs in a zoo. Yeah. He was given a hero's welcome with a parade. Oh. Everyone was super excited to see Balto. And so he lived out the rest of his life in the zoo. It was uh, the last six years of his life. Um, and then he started to get arthritis and he started to get really mm-hmm. sick. The veterinarian at the zoo made the really hard decision to put him to sleep. His remains were taxidermied, were mounted by a taxidermist, which when I first read that, I was like, oh, my God, like taxidermy never. I don't know if there's any big taxidermy people, but like it never looks quite right. I don't know. I had a friend who had a brother that was really into taxidermy and really it just (laughs) creeped me out. It's weird. 
I mean, I don't remember him being weird. I, I no. don't remember him at all. I just remember <laughs> like seeing these stuffed animals around her house and being like, what is that doing there? And she's like, oh, my brother did that. I was like, what? Yeah, it's, I don't know. There's there's part of it that's kind of cool to like get that close to something that you wouldn't normally see. Mm-hmm. I'm just a city girl, you know? I, yeah. I just, <laughs> through and through. So it's probably not that weird to other people. I, I, I mean, maybe I'm a city girl too. I don't, I, it just never, it just never looks right. No, they don't. <laughs> this picture on Wikipedia, there's a picture of it and it just, it looks bad. And I'm like, oh, oh. my God. I think it has something to do with when I hear husky, what I think a husky would look like, Balto doesn't look like that. Oh, really? I think that it's, I I read a book at one point about how, I think it's called like how wolves became dogs or something like that. Okay. And it's, it's a lot about how like humans messed up dogs, essentially, that like selective breeding and the breeding for aesthetics over like function have really like messed up dogs. So I don't know if that's what happened maybe is that like a husky has changed over the past 100 years maybe. Huh. So I thought maybe that had something to do. It kind of just looks like a dog. Like it looks like kind of a mutt dog. It's still at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. Okay. So you can still go see Balto. In 1998, the Alaska legislature passed HJR 62, which is the Bring Back Balto Resolution. Oh. But the Cleveland Museum of Natural History declined to return Balto. However, in October of 1998, Balto left for a five-month stay at the Anchorage Museum of History and Art, which drew record crowds. And then Balto was part of another exhibit at the Anchorage Museum of History and Art in 2017. So he has gone kind of back and forth. They're just not letting that dog rest. (laughs) Right. Yeah. They're still moving around this dog, this like long dead dog, dead for 90 years. Look, you bet your ass if I'm ever in Cleveland, I'm going to go see Balto. We'll check it out for sure. I did want to say that Togo, after Balto's kind of success. Did he get his due? (laughs) Well, Togo and Seppala went on a tour too and drew kind of the same crowds. Everybody was really excited to see Togo. They did say that people were like, where's Balto? And so he was kind of bummed about that. Togo was also taxidermied, mounted in taxidermied, but I think he went to Yale and they let people touch it. So it kind of like degraded the specimen. So it's no longer on display. So, which is kind of sad. Yeah. Aren't they supposed to be smart at Yale? You would think. I think it's kind of just that, like, the time. No, I know. Um, So wrapping up things. Um, And then the Iditarod sled dog race, which runs for more than 1,000 miles from Anchorage to Nome. Leonard Seppala was the uh, honorary musher in the first seven races. And the Leonard Seppala Humanitarian Award is given to the musher who provides the best dog care while still maintaining competitiveness. And the Leonard Seppala Heritage Grant is an Iditarod scholarship. Oh. So um, this really did make a big impact on, on Alaska. Gunnar Carlson, he never really talked much about this race. I think it really affected him. He was really kind of torn up about how it ended, I think. And his niece later on in life had asked him about the race. She said she kind of heard all these different stories about what had happened. And he said to her, I'll tell you this once and only once. If it wasn't for Balto, I wouldn't be alive today. Aww. And that's the story of Balto and the 1925 serum run to Nome, Alaska. Oh, my gosh. That was such a good story. Yeah. That statue in New York City, like, 
I feel like people see it all the time and are, are don't know as much about it. And like I said, there was the movie in... I'm so watching that movie tonight. Yeah. But like I said, the, the people in the documentary said it was full of wild inaccuracies. And if I remember correctly, it definitely made Togo seem like the enemy, like... Oh, no. Yeah. Which I don't, you know, I don't think was the case. That's not fair. I don't, I don't know if there's any, like, enemies, like, any bad people in this story. Like, or bad dogs. They were yeah. all good dogs. All good dogs. They were great dogs. Yep. No bad dogs ever. Yeah. yeah. So that was it. Story that was of so good. Also. Yay. That was so good. Speaking of movies, I was watching. Um, Do you ever watch that movie, The Fourth Kind? No, I haven't even heard of it. That's set in Nome, Alaska. Oh. Hmm. And I should probably do a story on that. Is it? A, it's a true story? It's about, like, alien abductions. And oh. a lot of it is based on, like, these real accounts that people had. Wow. Maybe I'll do that next time. Oh. That movie scared the living crap out of me, though. <laughs> I had nightmares the first time I watched it, and I tried to watch it again the other day. And I couldn't, it was late at night. I couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Too much. I know. I'm like a 33-year-old woman, like, sitting in my house. I'm like, I can't watch this. This is too scary. Yeah. Oh. We'll get into some UFO stuff yes. soon. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I almost don't even want to tell mine now because it's such a fucking downer compared to that. Oh. I'm going to take it in a totally different direction right now. Aw. <laughs> That's okay. Okay. I mean, if you want to just stop here and you want to just have the rest of your day with Balto on your mind, I totally understand because <laughs> this is about to get pretty dark. Oh. Uh, so we just learned all about how amazing dogs are, and now we're going to learn about how terrible human beings are. Yeah. So this is the story of the Stanford prison experiment. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm here for it. Let's do it. So there's a good chance you've heard of this before, it's considered the most famous psychological experiment of all time, and it's often cited as proof that when people are given a position of power over others, that they will in turn abuse that power. Mm -hmm. However, when we dig a little deeper, you'll find that the real story here is how society has been misled into thinking that this was a reputable study, when in actuality, it was a botched experiment from the get-go. Oh, yeah. And it was performed by this a really like attention seeking professor named Philip Zimbardo. Yeah. I didn't know that angle. I, I always thought it was like this really like structured thought out experiment that just went to shit. Yeah. Me too. Me too. Oh. I thought that too. I learned about it when I was in a psychology course in college. And right. I, yeah, I remember yeah. it being presented that way. And mm -hmm. when I looked into it now, I was just like, this is, this shouldn't be considered a study at all because it, it's not um that's not to say that there aren't some important conclusions that we can draw from the experiment it's just that they're a bit different than Zimbardo led everyone to believe um, now, Zimbardo was a social activist. To his credit, he was interested in bringing about prison reform. He mm. saw prisons as inhumane, and he wanted to show through his study that the prison model was just inherently flawed. Even back in, what was it, the 70s? Yeah, 1971. I'm glad we figured that out, right? Oh, yeah. It's all taken care of now. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I heard the other day that... so. We know in the United States, we have the largest prison population. Is it the largest per capita or the largest period? It's the largest period. And I think mm. that if we cut our population, our prison population in half, it would still be the largest of any first world country. 
It's really bad. Yeah, it's... Yeah, really bad. So in pursuit of his hypothesis, Zimbardo tainted the experiment and failed to adhere to basic scientific principles. He subsequently published his findings not in a peer-reviewed journal, but instead in the New York Times magazine. (laughs) And this just sensationalized the events, and thus the Stanford prison experiment became a part of the national zeitgeist and has remained there ever since. Wow. This was just like a, a news story, basically. Wow. That would definitely change how the public perceives it, for sure. Yeah. Ugh. Wow. Yeah. So he just, like, circumvented the whole process and just went straight to the press. Mm-hmm. Um, So the experiment in a nutshell was like this. They built out a mock prison in the basement of a Stanford University psychology building. Then they took 24 white male students, except for one participant who was Asian, which obviously this is not a group that is representative of the population at large. So right from there, they're making some mistakes. And it's too small, only 24 people. It's too small to have given any of the results any kind of real weight. My mom's a, she has her PhD in nursing. And she always tells me about, you always have to look at sample size. Yeah. You can get 24 people to believe anything. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Sample size is important, people. So important. Yep. Um, So the experiment was supposed to last two weeks in August of 1971. The participants were to be paid $15 a day, which in today's money would be about $100 a day. Wow. That's not that bad for a college student. No. Yeah. You know? I mean, they have to, like, lock themselves up. Well, half of them did. Oh, okay. So when they interviewed the participants, they asked them all if they wanted to be guards or prisoners. And I thought it was really interesting that all the participants chose to be prisoners. Yeah. And I'm not sure why that is, but I guess they saw the guards as bad guys, like, before Mm. they even began the simulation. I can't help but wonder if this was because of how they phrased the question to them and what they implied, you know, about being a guard, quote-unquote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they ended up just randomly assigning half of the group as prisoners and half of them as guards. So they just said, you don't get to choose anymore? I guess so. I don't know why they asked them that. It seems like something you shouldn't be asking the participants to start, you know? Well, I feel like it, like, kind of reveals a lot about your psychology. Like, if you wanted to be that, you know? Yeah. And that was another problem with this study is that when they put out the ad for the experiment, they said in the ad, it's for a prison simulation. So already Mm -hmm. they're attracting the kind of people that are okay going into that kind of environment. Yeah. You know? Uh, Yeah, sure. I wouldn't... Would you respond to that ad? I mean, when I was, like, at college age, maybe. I don't know. Uh, I feel like I wouldn't like it. (laughs) Honestly, one of my big fears is the thought of going to, like, like, not, like, jail, not, like, the drunk tank or whatever, but, like, going to prison. That terrifies me. To ensure an authentic experience, the prisoners were arrested by the Palo Alto police and booked. Uh, This included fingerprinting, the whole deal. Wow. Then they were transported to the basement prison where they were given smocks uh, with no underwear and stocking caps to wear. Wow. So it was, was like, the whole thing. Yeah. They, like, deloused them, the whole thing. Really, like dehumanizing these people like oh yeah it was set up like this there were three inmates to each cell 
there was a narrow corridor that served as like the prison yard and a small closet that was designated for solitary confinement. And then there was another larger room for the guards to convene. Oh, wow. The prisoners were to stay in this facility until the end of the study. The guards, on the other hand, worked in shifts and they were able to leave in between their scheduled times. They were given khaki uniforms, reflective sunglasses, and billy clubs. Though they were told from the beginning they couldn't use those billy clubs, they weren't supposed to harm the prisoners physically. But that's... Didn't work out. (laughs) uh, Well, it's up for interpretation. They would do things like punish them by making them do push-ups. They would strip them down naked. Mm -hmm. Um, So whether or not they physically hit them... They didn't do that, but I don't know. I think, like, making somebody who maybe isn't that physically fit do, like, 150 push-ups or something. I mean, and that's physical abuse, right? Right. If your body is not prepared to be able to do that, you can hurt yourself. Yeah, totally. Now, it's important to note that the idea for the experiment was not Zimbardo's, but that of an undergrad named David Jaffe, and that it was funded by the U.S. Naval Office of Research. Wow. So, basically... (laughs) This 20-year-old kid gave Zimbardo this insane idea for this prison experiment. And Zimbardo and the U.S. government were like, great, awesome. Let's get this party started. Let's do this. Wow. Oh, my goodness. It sounds like something a 20-year-old would, like, come up with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, which given the U.S. government's track record with things like MK Ultra, it's not mm-hmm. too surprising, but it's still kind of disappointing. Yeah. By day two of the experiment, the prisoners revolted, <laughs> but the guards were able to regain control of the facility by attacking the prisoners with fire extinguishers. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Which, again, seems like physical punishment. Right. Um, one of the inmates was said to have suffered a nervous breakdown and removed from the study. But in later interviews with that participant, he claimed that he had been faking it the whole time. I was just going to say, I would fake a breakdown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd be like, oh, I, I can't see. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, let me go. And he actually said it wasn't because of the circumstances. It was because he had been denied access to his textbooks. Okay. So this student was supposed to take the GRE at the start Mm. of the semester, which was only a few weeks away. And he took part in the experiment thinking that it would be a great way to shut out distractions and study for his test. Oh, yeah. And when he realized that he wasn't going to be able to do that, he faked a mental breakdown so he'd be released. I bet that kid got a good score on his GREs. I think he did, yeah. Grad school is in that kid's future, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Zimbardo claimed that in order to be released, all the inmates had to do was say the magic words, I quit the experiment. But participants deny being told Mm, this. You got to have a safe word. Yeah, I know, right? You you can't be doing crazy things, people, (laughs) without a safe word. (laughs) One of the major misconceptions is that the guards were left to their own devices and the researchers were only there to observe. And that would have made for a cleaner study. But the experiment did not develop naturally. There was no control group, and the researchers directly involved themselves in the study. What would be the control of this experiment? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it would be. I mean, would people, like, not have to know they're in an experiment? Or, like, I mean, I don't want to, like, think about how we would recreate this in a more... Yeah, but they did recreate it. They recreated it in the early 2000s, and they did not come up with the same results. Oh, okay. Better or worse? Better. (laughs) Yeah, better. Okay. You never know. You never know. Um, So Zimbardo gave himself the role of prison superintendent and Jaffe Mm. the role of warden. So the researchers are now like taking part 
in the prison simulation, which is highly unethical if you're running an experiment. You guys aren't getting the results I want, so I'm going to interject myself into this and interject myself as a, like, supervisor, like not yeah. on the same level as you guys. I'm going to interject myself as somebody that's in charge of you guys. Exactly. Yep. Oh. Yeah. You're starting to see what's going to happen here. Bad news. So the guards were given directives and coached by research assistants to be tough guards. Joff would correct Joffrey. Sorry, not Joffrey. Joffy. Joffrey. <laughs> Joffrey. <laughs> Watching Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Too much. Yeah. Didn't they mess up that last season so goddamn bad? I didn't mind the last season. I feel like— Really? I feel like it wrapped everything up. Okay, but that scene when they were, like, in the the pit— Spoiler alert. <laughs> Look, if you have not seen the last season of Game of Thrones— You're not going to ever. You're probably not, yeah. Keep going. Well, we warned them, and so you can skip ahead about 30 seconds here, <laughs> but I just have to say— that scene when they're all like sitting on that stage and uh, I mean. Oh yeah, that was kind of. <laughs> that was so bad. Kind of convenient. I, I don't know. I Anytime you're like ending some important thing to people, I feel like it's tough. Like what could they have done? Yeah. I, guess I mean, I right. think about like the ending of like Dexter or the ending of How I Met Your Mother. Like everyone was upset about all those endings. Well, um, I did really like. The episode, the one in the dark. What was the name of that episode? Oh, I never know the names of them. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the first one where they, where everybody was like, oh, we can't see anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. When they're like setting up for the battle and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, that like character-driven stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That was really good. The Bells episode too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That yeah. one was great. To have two episodes that are good. I mean, the last season was just like, what, six episodes? Like. Such a cop-out. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. That's all you're going to give us? I mean, (laughs) we've been through so much with them and just six. I think they got too expensive to make longer stuff. But that was like their only good show. (laughs) HBO? HBO. At the time. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Now we have Succession. Have you watched that? No, I haven't. I've heard it's good, though. Oh, my God. It's so good. (laughs) Okay, back. Not Joffrey. Joffy. Joffy. (laughs) Okay. Jaffe would correct the guards who weren't acting tough enough, encouraging them to exhibit antisocial behavior that Zimbardo would later claim had originated organically. Hmm. Some of the guards reluctantly punished the inmates and did favors for them. Others took on their role with relish. It really just depended on the person. The ones that really took on the tough guard role, they would force the prisoners to repeat their assigned numbers over and over again to reinforce the idea that that was their new identity. That their number, that a number was their Mm -hmm. identity? Yeah, so they weren't allowed to, like, use their name when addressing them. They could only use their number. So they would make them, like, stand there and, like, recite their numbers over and over and over and over again. It's like torture. Yeah. That's not being in— Like, I know that being in prison is bad. I don't think they do that in prison, do they? No, I think that's like torture. Yeah. Um, Sanitary conditions quickly declined. The guards made the prisoners go to the restroom in a bucket placed in their cell. And as punishment, they would not let them empty that bucket for days. Ew. Oh, my God. Guards would punish prisoners by removing their mattresses, making them sleep on concrete. Wow. One prisoner went on a hunger strike and a guard forced him into solitary confinement. Is that not having a break? Is that not having a psychological break? Saying that you're not going to eat? Like, how? what did the other guy do that they, like, let him out? So there were 24 total that had signed up for the experiment, but there were only, I think, 18 in the actual prison because there were three that were kept as possible subs. 
So when the guy that went crazy, or he didn't go crazy, but Faith going crazy left, they brought in this new guy. And this new guy was the one that was like the first day. He's like, I'm going on a hunger strike. You guys aren't giving us, you know, adequate conditions to live in. Mm -hmm. I mean, he wasn't on a hunger strike for like days and days. He Uh, just like, he basically just showed up and was like, we've got to do something. What can I do? You know, you look back in history, what have prisoners done in the past? They've gone on hunger strike. So I think he just drew from that. And Mm -hmm. um, they put him in solitary confinement for it. Yeah. Cool. It was pretty awful. One guard who was nicknamed John Wayne for his Southern accent became known for being particularly cruel. His real name was Dave Eshelman. In subsequent interviews, he expressed sincere regret for the way he treated the prisoners. I definitely feel like it's hard on the guards, too, like, to, like, look back on this. Yeah. That you kind of get caught up in something and kind of mob mentality. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not going to pretend like it's not something that might happen to me. That, like, if everyone is doing this thing and I'm being instructed by higher-ups to do this thing. Yeah. And it did. It messed with them. They, they're, like, all of the interviews with them later is, like, they were, like, we don't know how this got so out of hand. But the thing about this guy was, is that he, he had studied acting. Hmm. And he saw the simulation as akin to, like, an improv exercise. They were young, too. Like, you got to yeah. remember, like, these are, like, 18 to 21-year-olds. Boys. They're boys, yeah. Yeah. Uh. He claimed to have gotten the ideas for punishment from frat hazing he had endured only a few months earlier. Oh. <sighs> yeah, I know. According to him, Zimbardo and his staff seemed to approve of his efforts as a guard, and that just, like, emboldened him further. After the experiment ended, Zimbardo went out of his way to thank him personally and say, you did such a great job, you know. He was clearly happy with what he was doing. And, I mean, in Zimbardo's defense, he was trying to show that there needed to be prison reform, and he felt like the way that I think he could get that ball rolling was if he showed these like stream behavior patterns and these seemingly normal people when they're put in this environment. That was the goal? That was the goal. That was the goal. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you look at like real, what a weird (laughs) way of doing that. And you know, to this day, he defends it. He doesn't see anything wrong with it. And oh. he he's pretty arrogant about it. That's not yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, I listened to some interviews with him and he's, yeah, he's pretty arrogant about it. Mm. The experiment continued for six days until, da, 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 a woman enters. So the voice of reason. I know, we've said this before. Too many men. Too many men. You can't have too many men. I feel like you can't have too many of one gender, period. Like, if there were, like, 50 women in a room, there there might be some issues there, too. I don't think it would have turned out like this, it, though. No, I, I agree with that, yeah. So it was actually Zambardo's girlfriend. <laughs> and... She later became his wife, so I guess she didn't see any red flags here. Oh, my goodness. Her name was Christy, and I I hope I don't say this wrong, but Maslock. I think that's how you say it. She shows up to check out what was going on. She just wanted to see, like, hey, boo, how's your little experiment going? She goes in, and she takes one look around, and she's like, what the actual fuck? Just terrified. (laughs) Yeah, like, what is going on? This has gotten... So out of hand, you have to shut this down. And in the first smart move by Zimbardo, he does. He shuts down and he packs up. Oh, good. 
And that's it. That's the end of the experiment. It lasted six days. Listens to the the voice of reason yes. came in and told him what was up. Could you imagine like your husband going off for <laughs> a week and coming back and being like, guess what I was doing? And I was in charge of it. It wasn't yeah. just something yeah. that was happening. I thought it was a great idea. Yeah. And then being like, this is the man I'm going to marry. Yes. <laughs> look, not, not to make her look no. too bad. Because she did. Like she like came in and was like the knight in shining armor. And the situation was like... You guys have to clean up your act. This is crazy. This is psychologically damaging. These children, like, you, you've got to shut it down. Right, right, yeah. Now, it's true that the guards displayed disturbing behavior over the course of the experiment. That's, that's true. Mm-hmm. However, Zimbardo's conclusion that these traits are in all of us and will manifest when given a title and a societal role, that's kind of a false assessment of what happened. Because this study was not conducted independent of outside influences. Zimbardo and his team actively steered the behavior of their subjects. When the study got done, he was like, see, look, we're all evil. We'll all turn into these terrible human beings if we, if somebody tells us we're a guard. That's just who we all are, and that's what'll happen to anyone. Right. I always thought that that was the outcome of that experiment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but when you think about how much influence they had over the guards, yeah, we're left not with the conclusion that people are inherently cruel, but something as equally terrifying. That when people are put in an environment where a leader or person Mm -hmm. with supposed authority is dictating their behavior, people will conform to the expectations of those in charge. Yeah. We're especially prone to condone and commit atrocities if a leader is convincing us that we're doing so in service of a greater good, i.e. scientific progress, nationalism, religious beliefs. Eshelman described himself on his intake form uh, for the experiment as a quote-unquote scientist at heart. Hmm. He really believed that he was helping advance social science and took on his role as a guard in order to achieve that end. Wow. That's really interesting. So we've seen the impact of this concept throughout history. It's sometimes described in terms of the banality of evil. And many would argue that these principles were essential in the rise of Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, kids, is why you should always question authority. Yeah. Know what you believe deeply. Yeah. Like, know what's important to you and what's important to the people that you care about. And, yeah. like, don't ever go back on Like, it's easy to say, right? Like, I feel like we, like, tell kids all the time, like, don't question your elders. No. Question away. Yeah. Ask questions. Like, yeah. you should absolutely, like, voice your concerns and, and question society at large. <laughs> yeah. When kids are little. Like, I think about my, my niece. She just, like, will do nothing that you tell her. And she's so, like, bold and brave. And, and like, now when she's little, it's so annoying. But, like, when she's older, it's going to, like, make all the difference. Like, I keep saying she's going to change the world. Aww. She, like, wants to kind of push you and wants to, to figure out what she believes in. And- yeah. I hope that we're better at cultivating that now in, like, the next generation. And I think if you look at, like, our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation, I don't know that that was valued as much. Mm-hmm. It probably, I mean, I'm sure it depends on the family and, and the individual, but I think it is valued more now, and I think that's a good thing. Yep. Zimbardo's ultimate goal was sweeping prison reform, but in the end, his study ended up working against him. When it came out, people read it, and they were like, oh, so I guess if that's inherently in everyone, there's nothing we can do to change the system. So. Oh, wow. Hmm. 
we might as well not do anything at all. And if he had instead been more honest about what had happened in that study and was like, the reason why they acted this way was because I directly involved myself and didn't do this study correctly, that might have actually sparked prison reform. Yeah. Because it would have started to question the people in charge versus the inherent nature of an individual. Wow, that's really interesting. If the public at large thinks that we're all just like this, then they're not going to change anything. Yeah. Yeah, so anyway, that was a bit of a downer. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, that's really interesting. I, I find those like psychological things. I mean, I really like that sort of stuff. Yeah. So anyway, it's, I just thought it was really interesting to like learn that what I had in my head about this study and what I believed about it and what has been what had been taught to me was actually not what happened. Yeah. So, yeah. I didn't. That yeah. was not what I thought it was at all either. Super interesting. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, you're you're welcome. Anyway, you want to do our rundown? Sure. You want to go first? Sure. Um, mine's not really about a run, but in this like downtime that we had, I got new shoes. Oh. I, I know that I don't get them as often as I should. And then I'm also one of, I know I, I'm bad. I wear them to things that aren't running. Mm-hmm. I, I wear flip-flops for 90% of my life. And so anytime that I'm doing something that requires not flip-flops, I wear my running shoes, which mm-hmm. makes them just wear down even faster. These shoes, I mean, literally walked with me everywhere I went. They went around the world with me and they did all these different runs with me and so many mm-hmm. Zumba classes with me. I traded them out and I got some Brooks. Okay. I like Brooks shoes. I, I run in those. They're good. Yeah, they are really good. And the person at the at the store was telling me too that like all Brooks makes is running shoes. Oh. I've liked them a lot. Yeah. So I got new shoes and awesome. they've been working out pretty well. My friend got me. It gets dark here earlier than I'd like it to. Mm-hmm. And so my friend got me these light up shoelaces too. Oh my God. That's so fun. Yeah. <laughs> We're all kids at heart, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. I have been liking my new shoes, but they're definitely still like my new shoes. Like I still feel like they're not, I haven't quite worn them in, but yeah. Yeah. So that's my, my running story of the day. I guess. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my run is I went home for the holidays and I don't normally go back to Texas for Christmas, but I did this time and I, I love being around my family. I love my family. They're wonderful, mm-hmm. but I don't really love going back to my hometown. Yeah. It's just kind of, I don't, something about it just makes me want to crawl out of my skin. I just, I don't know. It's just not my favorite place to be. Yeah. So I, I got there on the 23rd and I was like feeling like just a little like anxious and just like, I don't know. I didn't like have a great time there growing up for a lot of it. And so the next morning I woke up, it was Christmas Eve. And I was just like, I got to like run out these feelings. I got to do something like I got to get over this. Like I want to be able to be here and be present with my family and like not have all this other like stuff in my head. I I didn't want to run in my neighborhood because my best friend had passed away just a couple houses down from where my parents live. Mm-hmm. And it was a few days away from the anniversary of her death. So I was just not really feeling like running around that neighborhood. Just too much. Yeah, exactly. So instead, I, I went to my mom's gym and uh, I got on a treadmill. And like, I don't usually do long runs on a treadmill, but right. something inside me was just ready to run. And I did like five miles. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. That's a lot on a treadmill. 
it was really good. And then after that, I felt like I just shed something. Like I just, I felt a lot better. I mean, I still didn't love being in that environment, but I was able to kind of just put that aside and like be with my family. And I mm-hmm. had a great time. I love my niece and nephew. They're just the most fun. And it was really good. And so, yeah, so that's my run. I feel like that's what running does. It reset me. Reset. That's a good word. Yeah, it reset me for sure. Cool. That's really nice. It was actually followed by the stupidest run that I ever took. <laughs> That'll be next week. Yeah, I'll, I'll share that one next week. <laughs> We all have to have stupid runs, too. It was not. I did something not so smart, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, check us out online at Peculiar Stories on FireOutTales.com. And on Instagram, same thing, Peculiar yep. Stories and Fire Out Tales. And yeah. our Patreon is? Patreon.com slash P-S-A-F-O-T. And make sure you rate, listen, and subscribe. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, guys. Yep. And just remember, it is... Far better to be peculiar than to be boring. Yay! Woohoo! Yay! Bye, guys. Bye.